after there is actual harm, after somebody harms another person, that relationship does have to be restored. Like that's a good thing to restore those relationships. I've seen teachers continually punish a kid. Like somebody may have said or done something in September. Well, there's still ill will in November and December towards that. There's still relationship strife there. And if there's relationship strife between students and teachers, then learning isn't happening as effectively as it could. So there is a need, you know, th there's a need for a discipline consequence and a conversation and a way to repair that harm that was done. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. All right, my guest today is Jason Littlefield. Uh, we met on Twitter, and Jason is up to some really exciting stuff. So for those who have been listening to this podcast a while and remember episode 16 with Michael D.C. Bowen, Jason has worked closely with Michael D.C. Bowen over at Free Black Thought, where Jason is a co-founder. Um, Jason is the founder of Empowered Pathways and the originator of something he calls Empowered Humanity Theory, which provides an alternative to some of the more ideologically driven teachings available in the schools these days about things like social and emotional learning, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Jason is doing really great work because there are many of us who are concerned about indoctrination in the school systems and ideological capture. But Jason was, is one of those people who's actually doing something about it by creating alternatives. So today we're going to learn all about the healthy alternatives that he has spent this last chapter of his career developing. Jason, welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. All right. So uh, tell us about empowered humanity theory. Well, it is a curation of attitudes and practices that I developed really it, over the course of probably from 2017 to 2021. It was something that I was thinking about and working towards for many years because I started to see the holes in the ideas that were being put forth by diversity training and by the way that people were talking about anti-racism and even in my own profession of social and emotional learning. I was I would attend these trainings and I'd realize I didn't learn anything. I didn't learn any new strategies because one of the concepts that was repeated over and over and over 
was this idea of the root cause of racism and the root cause of harm. And the only thing, the only answer that I was given was what are these root causes was essentially classical liberalism and the Enlightenment era. And I knew that racism and human harm existed way before the 1700s. And that, let's say, flipping to a brand new economic or a brand new governing system would not, uh, how do I say this? It would not get rid of racism and it would not make people get along better with each other because my undergrad was spent studying history and political science. And I know that all systems of human organization there's human harm and conflict. And really, whenever societies turn to collectivism, and even just small groups of people focus on collectivism and denying the individual, then that is, that's the root cause of human prejudice. So Let I started... Let me make sure I'm following. Yeah. So, so as you were participating in the trainings about how to understand and work with problems like racism, for example, uh, you were getting the message that people thought the problems originated with classical liberalism and a capitalist economic structure, for instance. And so, and, and so then that rate that would raise the notion that the next step is therefore to undermine the foundations of classic liberalism, capitalism, and things like that. But your spidey sense was going off telling you, wait a minute, un- you know, dissolving the fabric of society as we know it, thinking that that's going to solve the problem of some kind of injustice amongst humans. Like that's a dangerous assumption because what if that's not true? I have plenty of evidence that injustice and bigotry are things that long predated these particular structures. Is is that kind of how you're thinking? That is exactly. Mm-hmm. And I started noticing the new cultural movement really around 2010, 2011. I spent 21 years working in public education, and I tell people that I I think I have an unfair advantage of understanding what this woke movement is because I spent so long in public education. And when when I first saw it from a distance, it wasn't invading my workspace like it would in 2017 through 2020. But my my initial response was to sell everything I have and move out of the country. And that's what I did. I said, I don't want any, this is going to, this is, A, it's aimed to destroy society and it relies on human conflict to do so. It's like, I don't want any part of this. I'm out. So what what were you doing? At the time when you decided that you had to walk I was that a, far away I, from everything. I was a high school assistant principal. Mm-hmm. I was a So you were in the school system a little over a decade ago working as an assistant principal and you saw the DEI and SEL stuff intruding and it raised such alarm bells for you that you left the country. Yes. Well, and it wasn't necessarily called DEI and SEL. I didn't have that language for it yet, but I I saw 
essentially what I saw was the the basic human organization being reshifted. And by that I mean that, you know, basic prior to now, the basic human organization was citizens living in nation states. I saw that idea be beginning to become uh, removed by identity politics. I was like, oh, this this is going to this is a cultural movement that can dis- that's going to kind of reunite and reconfigure how the how the world is. Because I saw the political, I guess, struggle or issue or debate always as you know, it's it's a basically sovereignty versus this new globalism that was spreading. And I saw the social justice movement as a way to remake the culture of societies. You know, I, I listened to the Leslie Elliott podcast today, and she mentioned a few times that there's this, there seems to be this idea of destroying society. And I was like, yes, that mm. is, that's the goal. So I saw that mm. many years ago, and my initial response was to leave. And then obviously that didn't work because here I am in the United States. I came back a year later. I spent time in China and then in Benin, Africa. So that was a pretty interesting year. And then I was returned back into, I'll say the heart of the belly of the beast because I became a social and emotional learning specialist in Austin. And honestly, from 20... I started that job in 2014. So from 2014 to 2017, it was the best working environment that I have ever been in, the best working group, the best team. And we were doing good work. We were getting into, you know, teaching mindfulness and teaching growth mindset and working on increasing resilience, the things that I thought were missing in public education. And then around 2017 was when the training started to kind of come in and become voluntary. And All right, let me let me pause you there because there's yeah. there's so many chapters of your story here, and I just want to catch people up. For sure, a um, couple of things I forgot to mention earlier. I'm just going to throw them out there now. In the introduction, I forgot to mention your own podcast, so I apologize for that. So you are also a co-host of uh, Reformation Radio podcast with your co-host Eric Smith, um, and I was also going to mention that. Um, that time period where you left the United States, you wrote about that story in Third Factor magazine. Uh, and so for anyone who's been listening to this podcast a while and you're familiar with my episode with Jesse Manisto um, of Third Factor magazine, uh, there's that connection there as well. So you did write about the story of why you went to China and Africa and how you ended up coming back. And I just wanted to fill in those gaps for anybody who's actually curious about that That chapter of your story. It's interesting to me hearing that as much as you first started experiencing the intrusion of this way of thinking into the field of education back in 2010, 2011, um, you also say that between 2014 and 2017, at least working in the field of social and emotional learning felt like a good environment. It, um, it was, so then the takeover of, of that environment came a little bit later. You noticed a change there around 2017? Around 2017, I saw the 
the, the trainings were becoming voluntary. Like you could go do this. And then 2018, um, one of my coworkers and supervisors, she was like, Jason, you really should go, go check this out. Go check out what they're, what they're doing. So I went to a two day training, which was that called beyond diversity. That was the name of that group, I believe. And I remember the trainer was, you know, given the introduction of the overview. And he said that our founder was trained under Solinsky and a red flag went up. I was like, Oh, rules for radicals. Uh, I, I know Salalinsky and his objective is a Marxist revolution. So the, this training was, you know, I was told I was racist because I was white and I, she was like, yeah, that's not, that's not right, even remotely true. So then I think 2018, half of my working group went to, they participated in this cohort where they went to the trainings and read the books. And after I'll say three fourths of them became woke. And I remember they actually used the word woke uh, in a meeting. Somebody said, well, y'all just aren't woke. We're like, well, what does that mean? So I saw it like rip our working group apart and rip friendships apart that I, that I, that I had pre-existing friendships with what I thought were highly skilled people. You know, we operated under our own social contract and we shared our feelings with each other and we spoke our truth and, and did all of the things and had all of those things for our working norms. But when I started questioning the ideology, I was immediately, you know, what happens to everybody that questions the ideology? They're excluded and isolated. But I kept asking the questions. I, I stood firm in my ground because I was like, surely they'll get it. And surely they'll realize. And surely they'll, they'll see. Because my best friend on the team, he just, his skin color just happened to be black. So they saw that I had meaningful relationships with all people, but it still didn't hit them. And then in 2021, my job description as an SEO specialist, they dissolved that job description. They rewrote a job description that included having to advance the ideology. And we were told we had to reapply for our jobs. And if we did reapply, we would get those jobs back. But that, that's when that's, I officially had to dip out because I was like, I can't, I just can't. Yeah. And you were mentioning the episode I did with Leslie Elliott. Uh, that was episode 33, by the way, for anyone who was wondering about that. Right. And she talks about how during the course of her education at Antioch University, while she's been kind of blowing the whistle the whole time about ideological capture, um, at some point they ask all students to sign a civility pledge. So, you know, you're tens of thousands of dollars into debt. You've been going down this path for a long time. And then it's like, if you want to continue, if you want to pass go, you have to sign this pledge. And I mean, civility, sure, sounds great. Like I agree to civility, but again, it's one of those words that 
doesn't mean what you think it means anymore. So I'm hearing, again, that parallel there where it wasn't enough to take a new training or participate in a conversation. And there, there wasn't, you couldn't expect to participate in a conversation in the same way that civil conversations had gone previously where you and your colleagues were all having, you know, meaningful discussion. Instead, there was kind of this ideology being enforced and you're, you're continuing to act in good faith. Like, well, if I just ask enough questions and if they get to know me and see my heart and, you know, like, doesn't hurt that my best friend is black, like is, you know, of course, right. but you know, that's one of those well, things and you're, they not already, say. you're they, not allowed to say my best friend is black. Right. But like, but you're operating in good faith, but then they actually dissolve your job structure. Yes. And they already and, knew me that, I mean, that we had like three years of friendship and working camaraderie already like we had that positive history but once once they accepted the new doctrine and i rejected it i mean i i was yelled at i was i remember when i first sat down and tried to have a conversation with a friend i said you know if when you dissolve the individual into a group every person is given a label of oppressor or oppressed that's that's marxism this is like a neo marxism and i was screamed at that i needed counseling for noticing the marxist trend i was that screamed you, at i was screamed that at that you needed counseling that Can i, I needed... just by the way <laughs> let me take this opportunity to express my thoughts and feelings about that as a licensed mental health therapist, specifically a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, that That is one of my pet peeves is when I hear stories of people telling each other, you need to go to therapy. Um, because it's almost always said, or at least received in a pretty aggressive context of like, obviously I'm right and you're wrong. And if you don't get that, then there's something wrong with your brain and you need to go to a professional to fix it. Um, (laughs) you know, I, I've never, um, wanted to be in a position of providing counseling to anybody who wasn't there by their own free will. And if someone has been dragged to therapy by a parent or a dissatisfied partner or anything like that, I always start with the resistance. Start with, you really don't want to be here, do you? Hmm. That's awkward. Yeah. I don't really want to force you to be here either. So what are we doing here? You know? And so whenever people use coercion or manipulation or they to try to hurt each other with their words. I'm not saying that there's never been a time that someone has said you need therapy and been right about that. <laughs> but, right. But I mean, I, I think people use that in a hurtful way. Oh, uh, totally. To be you told know, that your way of thinking is wrong and you need someone to get inside your head and rewire it until you understand things the exact same way we do. That's that's pretty messed up. It's condescending too. And, it, and it, invasive. Yes. But I I tried to stay with that conversation. But after that same phrase uttered three times in a span of fifteen minutes, I said, Okay, I'm I'm gonna dip out because you've done that multiple times now, so we'll we'll talk about it later. And we really, we really never, we never did. And I thought that once the George Floyd summer 
and all of that blow up, I thought that may open people's eyes like, oh, maybe, maybe this isn't right. Because what I what I noticed is we're trying we're, we're trying to solve very complex human problems by putting people into groups and having them compete over compete for power and resources and that's not going that's not going to work well i feel like it's even more insidious than that like because it is it is our nature to be to form groups and be competitive it's kind of you know we have both a competitive and a cooperative drive i feel like this ideology reinforces and emphasizes that though and also at the same time says it 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 has such a negative way of reframing everything that any like normal healthy self-assertion or pursuing of healthy goals like you know pursuing any amount of wealth status education anything like that if you belong to one of these demographic categories that has been deemed oppressor then there's something like sinful and evil about you pursuing resources at all. And it's like the definition of what it is to be a good person is, well, first of all, you can't be a good person if you're a quote unquote oppressor, but the best thing to do is like to try to self-destruct is kind of the way it comes across. I don't know. Um, anyway, so you were seeing these issues the summer of 2020 when things heating up with George Floyd. I'm curious what made you think at that time that that was going to persuade anyone of anything? I guess here in Portland, well, let me put it this way. That was the summer that my own views changed, but because I think things were heating up in such a polarizing way. And I, I feel like a lot of people doubled down on their rigid right. beliefs. I think they did as well. It, well, I, I'll go back to... 2012 when I left the country because I was like, oh, this thing's coming and it's not going to be good. And then I spent 2018 and 2019 really trying to push the conversation. And the reason why I was trying to push the conversation is because I just, I had this feeling like this, oh crap feeling something really awful is right around the corner. And if we could just come together and fix it and address it now, that awful thing that's around the corner, it's it won't happen. So I saw the summer of 2020 as that awful thing. I mean, you there in Portland, you experienced the over 200 consecutive nights of violence. I watched, I watched those. I watched the live streams of those demonstrations from when they really got heated, which was around you know 11 p.m. to about 1 or 2 a.m. was when the awfulness was really transpiring. So I thought, okay, now that it's here and it's in our face every single day, maybe now we can have that conversation and we can begin to do some of these other, other things. Like I was talking about human dignity back then, and I was talking about how do we celebrate our common humanity? Because whenever we see another person as we see ourselves, that decreases the psychological capacity for prejudice. Like it automatically decreases our capacity for prejudice and all human beings have the capacity for prejudice. 
And when we front load seeing each other as an other, it strengthens that capacity. So I noticed that these trainings that we're going to, we're strengthening the capacity for prejudice. We're relying on human conflict and tearing up relationships and destroying our psychological well-being for this political cause. If we could snap out of that and do something different, you know, it's like we're trying to clean up an clean up an ink spot on the carpet with an ink bottle, with a bottle of full ink and a, and a toothbrush, just smearing it, make it, making it worse. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I want to I want to go there to to where you're going next with like what you were learning from all this and how it helped you form an empowered humanity theory, but my mind is really on the summer of 2020 and just how big of a time that was for me personally in terms of a shift in my belief system and you know, I'm not sure how much I've shared about this before on previous episodes. I know I've alluded to bits and pieces of my upbringing, but um, I was a child in the LA riots. I lived there. Um, I was seven years old and that was my neighborhood. Okay. And, you know, that was a few days of my school being shut down and looters running down the streets with their arms full of stolen goods and so many fires and so many explosions that um, there was ash raining from the sky into my uh, back patio. Oh, wow. like It was like raining ash. Um, I remember there was a time that my mom did have to go somewhere and had to take me with her. Obviously, she wasn't going to like leave me at home by myself. And we were driving ar- and she was making a right turn around one corner. And meanwhile, on the opposite corner on the left side, uh, a gas station exploded. So I was there, right? And it was in the wake of those riots 
that uh, the worst of the bullying I experienced occurred. And the reason for that was that, you know, these are all seven, eight, nine-year-old brains processing what's happening and what their parents are telling them about what they're seeing in their community and what they're seeing on the news. And the way that children's brains are interpreting that is just like, oh, white people are horrible. Like white people have done all these horrible things to black people. And that's why this is all happening. And so white equals bad. And so therefore, you know, that little white girl, let's get her, right? Like she's, mm. you know, and so when I, when I said before we started recording that I have issues with being scapegoated, like that's where it originated, okay. right? Because I'm like seven years old and I'm being scapegoated for the entire history of slavery and like living in fear for my life for long periods of time. So, um, and I was assaulted and I was name called and, you know, all of that happened. And so that's my own personal background of how I was affected by riots, by by race war <laughs> riots, yeah. wow. based in particular narratives uh, of what's happening between racial groups. Um, and so when it was happening in my own city, you know, and I was pretty liberal at the time, I think I felt deeply conflicted. And, you know, I remember I knew someone who was going to the protests during the day. And I said something to another friend about, well, at least I know they're on the right side of history or something like that. And, and my friend, I will never forget this. He said, how do you know he's on Mm. the right side of history? And that was like a dawning realization moment for me of like, how do I know we're on the right side of history? You know, and, and from there, a lot unfolded in terms of my like unpacking that, right? That how, how does anybody ever know for sure that they're on the right side of history? If history has a right side and a wrong side, I mean, hindsight being what it is, we often do look back and say, well, that was the right side and that was the wrong side. And that, you know, that's subjective, that's arguable. But um, I think that gave me permission to start questioning it. And that same friend took, uh, tipped me off to Dark Horse Podcast, which has completely changed my life. And uh, it's through Dark Horse Podcast that I found out about detransitioners and this whole chapter in my, my journey unfolded. But I think, I think about it from the standpoint of what's healthy for children, right? Like I know because I was a child who was affected by this stuff. And even if I were to believe with all of my heart that rioting was an appropriate response to a real injustice. And even if I were to believe the media's narrative, I would still have to question what's the impact on children, right? Mm. And, you know, and then I shortly thereafter, I met my partner who uh, was at the time a single father, you know, now we're together, right? But he was a single father of two children who were growing up exposed to those, um, riots and protests downtown. And, uh, you know, fortunately they've, (laughs) they've come out relatively unscathed, especially compared to me. Um, but you know, regardless of whatever drama we have as adults and our conflict in society, children, they're not blank slates, but they're, you know, they're certainly a lot more innocent, uh, Mm -hmm. and they deserve the best shot that they have at, you know, all, all the opportunities we could possibly afford them. 
So I just wanted to take a moment to really think about that with you because I haven't often slowed down on this show to actually process what the summer of 2020 was like for me. And and you brought it up and it was a huge turning point in really uh, allowing myself to think for myself and seek out a diversity of opinions rather than just absorbing the kind of liberal media's narrative and the narrative of the people around me in Portland, Oregon. Wow. Th- thanks for sharing. And I'm curious, uh, I'm curious what made you question like that's a good how do how do i know versus well yeah duh i'm on the right side and just kind of plow through so i'm i don't know if that's an easy answer for you Mm -hmm. but it, it makes me curious because i would like others to find that i mean i think i was ready for that i think it was you know the context included a solid friendship with a person who I would trust with my life, someone who helped me get out of a really bad situation before. So, you know, having that like honesty and trust in a friendship is definitely a good foundation for challenging each other. Um, But also I think I was ready for it. You know, I think that up until that point, I'd been like, yeah, the emperor's clothes look great. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, it was like the first person to point out like, huh, he looks a little bare skinned to me, <laughs> you know, for me to be like, oh, really? You see that too? Okay. You know, so I that, think I was ready for that. Gotcha. And I do think that that friendship was important. And that's why I was so baffled by my experience. Because I was like, because you're like, isn't everyone else seeing what I'm seeing? Like, how is this healthy? Yeah. And y'all, we were friends. We've been friends for the past three years. But now, so I I also had time to study the ideology's impact on working groups and friendships and to see and to see what it does and to realize, oh, it's destroying friendships and relationships because that's what it's meant to do. That's what that's what this ideology is purposed to do. It's meant to divide people and it actually is. And I, if I could reference the I don't know what episode it was, but the Mike Belcher episode. Mm, yeah, that one got some bad reactions out of people who know more about Marxism and history than I do. Mm. I felt a little blindsided. I don't know. Mike sounds like he knows what he's talking about to me. But Well, I think the 3,000-foot view he nailed, you know? So I, I think that that is a good episode for, for people to reference. You know, the, he mentioned that, you know, the Frankfurt School scholars putting forth these ideas into the culture and the 20s and 30s. So what we're seeing what we're seeing now is the actualization of that transformation of the culture. And it's it's in place and what it's doing is destroying it's actually destroying the neural networks associated with psychological well-being. And and you've done some interesting work on that which I hope we'll get to soon. You you talk about the neural circuitry of resilience. So maybe we should kind of pick up with your story and how all of these experiences eventually led you to develop your own theory and your whole, um, I don't know, company organization. What do you call it? Empowered Pathways? It's a, it's a nonprofit organization. 
Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. So yeah, let's pick up with your story. Cool. Uh, so I established Empowered Pathways in 2017. It was a moment in my life where I was like, I had, I was going through a divorce. So I was starting that new chapter. It's like, okay, what do I do now? And I saw this great need for bringing people together and getting this ideology, this, the divisive ideology out of our world. I remember the moment I was standing in my backyard thinking like, okay, what do, what do you do? I was like, just do this thing. So I started the nonprofit and working, tinkering with what I now call empowered humanity theory in 2017, when I was still with my full-time day job in the heart of the woke, woke, woke stocracy. So, and I tried to bring some of those ideas into my working group and they absolutely rejected them. So that, that's, that was my, my dichotomy was by day I was working in the, in the woke era and then my side, call it my side hustle at the time was providing these other, other trainings around human dignity, around compassion, uh, self-care and, and all of these things. And I didn't, I didn't start calling attention to the ideology probably until 2019 when I noticed that it was, okay, this thing is negatively impairing human beings social, socially and emotionally. So as an SEL specialist, I cannot in good faith present and talk to people about well-being when I know that it's the culture at large that is contributing to our lack of well-being. That's, that's the moment. I love the way you put that. You're like, as a social and emotional learning specialist, I cannot in good faith and conscience do something that violates what I know about social and emotional learning. And I feel like that's, you know, I that sentiment is echoed in my own story and in the story of anyone who's spoken out about something they see happening in their field. You know, for me, it's like as a mental health professional, I cannot in good faith and conscience promote things that are not good for mental health, right? And same thing for the doctors who are speaking out about gender malpractice and all of that. I feel like it's it's kind of this beautiful milestone that some of us reach. Some of us has, have the fortune and the fortitude to reach in our lives and, and some people never get there. But you know, where you've so deeply integrated the virtues of your chosen field and really made it your own, you know, and to the point where you don't allow anyone else to dictate. As much as you've learned from your predecessors and colleagues at that same time, you also have enough of a sense of mastery and responsibility that you don't let anyone else dictate how you practice the values. You just practice the values, whether you're on the clock, whether you're getting paid or not. Yep. That was, you know, that was the whole reason why I started speaking out. If, if it wasn't, if this thing didn't negatively impair our personal well-being and relationships with each other, I, I really wouldn't care. Unless I also knew that actually it's, it's working to erode the classical liberal enlightenment era. That's another reason why I'm, I speak out. I think human sovereignty and autonomy and living in a free society 
is what's best for our species. Because any, I mean, you look at communist revolutions and collectivist, even, you know, on a smaller scale with cults, they always, there's always a deadly end. So if we know that there's always a deadly end, why even take a step down that road? Okay, so you've named several values that your work is guided by. You've talked about dignity, compassion, sovereignty, autonomy. Did I miss any of your major core values? Uh, my personal values or... The ones that guide your, your organization. Well, let me talk about maybe empowered humanity theory, what, how, that, how that guides... So one of the attitudes is, is establishing a value-centered identity, which is the opposite of the intersectional identity. And Love it. A value-centered identity. And this is a, it's an exercise that I, I work, work through during workshops with people, is I have them set, set their own personal values. I've got a, a sheet. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's like 100 words on there. But I have participants go through, like, find the first 10 that really speak to you, then narrow that down to five and narrow that down to three. And by establishing that, that value-centered identity, those three, five, or 10 values should guide your, your thinking, your in, interpersonal communication, and how you act and behave with others. For example, my three are dignity. Dignity, integrity, and humor. And I, those are the three values three that, that I try to live my life by. And those things came into place whenever I was, I guess you could call it getting bullied uh, because I had former working people describe what was happening to me as bullying. But I chose dignity so that I would not basically kind of belittle myself or believe what was happening and so that I wouldn't lash out, react negatively to the people that were doing this to me. How can I still honor them as people but disagree with that ideology? And then I humor, that's always been one of my things and I really... I felt that time was a time to really laugh and find humor in things whenever I could. So that's, that's one of the attitudes, and it's strengthened by practices that build awareness and equanimity. I love the idea of a value-centered identity, and I especially love dignity as a value. Uh, have you read Dignity by Donna Hicks? Yes. So that's where, that's, that's where that came from. Uh, yeah. our, our group... So an interesting thing about that book is our group did a book study and there were members of my team, they told me they couldn't get through that book because it triggered them. The ideology is so strong and so controlling that people I'm reading... Ha- I mean, it's been a few years since I read it, but I'm having a hard time thinking about what would be triggering about it it's it, like it's encouraging because you, you you read the book and you're immediately impressed because it's like wow this woman has like resolved conflicts internationally yes and been in some really 
sketchy situations. And she has discovered through these hard-won experiences the value of dignity and how by living in dignity with respect for yourself and others and by bringing dignity to interactions where it's missing, like you can accomplish great things. I mean, what a, what a great message. I'm mean, like, how would anybody take issue with that? And I was also told by somebody else that, well, that's easy for you to say because you're, they went through the whole thing. You're a straight, white, cis right. male. Like, so it just, that was, that was something that was immediately that? <laughs> discredited and it caused that really... I would want to. I'd be like, "Are you saying that women don't have dignity? Are you saying that gay people or people who aren't white don't have dignity? Like, they, well, that I, sounds like a you problem to use their own language." I know, and I, I think uh, because dignity and honoring the dignity of all, it totally eliminates somebody being an oppressor and even being oppressed because of their born into biologies. Oh yeah, so it like flies in the face of this like shame and fear and guilt laden culture that they're trying to create. To what end? Um, when you talk about a value centered identity, too, another thing I wanted to add to that is just that you know I feel like my work as a therapist has grown me up in some ways because I've I've been working as a therapist from my late twenties through my late thirties, and so obviously you know I've grown a lot as a person during that time, and I feel like one of the most beautiful things about how this work has shaped me as a person is that, um, I mean, well, first of all, it requires me to treat every human being with dignity, including people with stories that are horrifying or shameful, um, and to see our common humanity. And also I think through that process of serving such a diverse population that I've worked with in my career, I've come to find common humanity and relate to people through their values. You know, people who have had really different life experiences from me, people who belong to very different demographics than me, you know, it's about how they're perceiving and responding to what life is handing them Mm -hmm. that tells me what their values are or what their aspirational values that are that maybe they're trying to step into. And it's my job to facilitate that, to, you know, help them identify and remove barriers to living as the highest expression of their authentic, you know, value driven self. And so I think it's, I've just had so many wonderful moments in my career that have shaped me as a person of seeing our common humanity and seeing, you know, this person appears so different from me on the surface. If you just look at our demographics, but if you look at how they handled that situation, I feel like I'm right there with them. Because yeah. that is a values-led response, and I'm so proud and honored that I get to support this person living through their values. So I, I absolutely agree with the the value-centered identity. And it's strange to be in a field like mine or in a field like yours, for instance, where you do have those types of beautiful growth experiences that teach you so much about just the meaning of life and what it is to be human, and then have people come in with this demographics-based identity stuff that just you're just like, what about that enlightening conversation? I just <laughs> right, or the the deep connections that I have with people that aren't like me. You know, I when I lived in ben- I lived in Benin, Africa, on my exit from the U.S. 
And I formed really deep, meaningful relationships with people that had dirt floors for homes. You know, but I, I saw how they cared for their children and I cared for my children. And we laughed and we talked about how governments are corrupt and just really connecting on that common humanity theme. And that's one of the, so those practices that celebrate common humanity, it strengthens our dignity lens. And that's another, that's another aspect of empowered humanity theory is engaging in practices that celebrate our common humanity. Because whenever we do that, we decrease the psychological capacity for prejudice, which is the root cause of human harm. So the more we practice that, the less we harm each other, and we actually are strengthening those areas of our brain so that when we see somebody that's different from ourselves, we're not going to, oh, they're a, that's a bad person because of how they, how they look or how they believe or how they vote, any of those things. So the common it's humanity It's like the value of breaking bread. Yes. Or working together on a project. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Daryl Davis, who, you know, the, the black man who courageously formed friendships with all these members of the Ku Klux Klan. And through those friendships, they voluntarily gave up their robes and yep. denounced their participation in the KKK. I mean, talk about courage, you know, like th- what an incredible are- person. And, and what he did was he broke bread with people. He just would have a beer with them and talk about sports or movies or, you know, and, and is it unfortunate that it took a, a black man putting himself potentially in harm's way and, you know, stooping to that level, you could say, of like having to do that with someone. Yes, you could say it's unfortunate, but it's also brilliant. And it it works with everything we know about how human beings work, you know, like the average person, I mean, KKK members are not the average person, but they still have an unfortunate amount in common with the rest of us. And we need to be able to learn from that. And just that act of breaking bread and humanizing. And the other thing I'll say is that like the value of teamwork, mm-hmm. you know, the value of having to work on a shared project with people who are different from you. That's really what also I think allows you to see common humanity. So you're talking about some of the principles of empowered humanity theory. Please continue. The So we talked about, let me just kind of we talked about the value-centered identity and strengthening that by engaging in practices that build awareness and equanimity. So some of that mind, that mindfulness practice, having, having a repeated mindfulness practice so that whenever things are chaotic, you can rest in that moment and not do further damage or further harm to yourself or somebody else. And keeping yourself in check with your values, you know, that, that self-awareness. If I get in, sometimes I'll be in a situation and I like, are you being a person of integrity right now? Should you speak up and say something? Should you not say something? So having that voice in my head of, are you honoring your dignity? Are you honoring the dignity of this person, especially on social media with social media engagements because a lot of people like to engage in that conflict and attack economy. So reminding myself that dignity is one of my values prevents me from going there in that place. Yeah. And then the, the, same. 
the final. Not to say I never slip up, but oh, we all slip is, up. But that is a lifesaver. Remember, yeah, and just and I want to add it that you know you have to in order to be successful, you have to work with how your brain actually works, which is to have you know in in heated moments you can't think too complex a thought, right? So just having a habit of simply pausing and remembering a simple word like dignity, right? Does this stand the test of dignity? Yes or no? That's such a great tool. Anyway, so mindfulness and... Uh, And then, so the third attitude is prioritizing mindsets of inquiry and compassion over mindsets of fear and judgment. Because that fear and judgment response, that's our, that's our typical first reaction because that's the reaction that has kept our ancestors alive. And because they had fear and judgment, we're all living today because they, they made it. But that, those reactions of fear and judgment, that's also where harm comes from. And that's how we limit our potential and when we can limit the potential of others. Whenever fear, whenever physical safety is not an issue, um, fear and judgment, they, they do us harm. So how do we, you know, in the moment when we notice um, I'm being judgmental or I'm being scared, get curious with that. Ask yourself questions. What more information is needed? And why am I thinking this? Why am I behaving that way? Why could this person be acting this way? What are their, you know, and go to, to the compassion piece. Is this, is this reaction? Mm, is, is this a product of suffering? Is there some sort of suffering involved? Because that's where the compassion comes in. Because if there's, if suffering comes to the top, comes to the surface, then I can work to alleviate that suffering. And that's how I also, I'll, sorry, I'll go back to dignity, but that's that's how I talk about dignity is that beneath our biologies and beneath our personalities, we all have a, a being and that be all beings share two, two distinct qualities. And that's the desire to avoid suffering and the desire to alleviate suffering when we encounter it. So when we connect with each other and realize that, that's honoring the dignity of that person. And that's honoring the dignity of ourselves. Is is that that thing that's beyond our conditioned personalities and are born into biologies is that we're all really profoundly interconnected. And the more we can maintain that connection the stronger our human family will be. And right now I see us totally rejecting that idea. And I think that's why we're so kind of discombobulated is because we're no longer as connected as we could be. So you've outlined the values that guide your work. And now how do you um, apply those values to curriculum for is it K through 12? It's, it, it is K-12, but I also do work trainings for just regular working groups. I've put on a workshop for insurance salespeople before uh, because 
I, I don't necessarily uh, keep it in an educational box. And what I really train on is the attitudes and the practices and how to cultivate those attitudes and practices. I don't sell like a, a packaged curriculum. I don't tell people, here's what you need. This, this is going to fix you. This is going to fix you. Uh, I have an overall training model and I work with clients, you know, tell me what are your needs? What are you seeing? And how can I tailor this? How can I tailor empowered humanity theory to your organization? And one of okay. the things that I'm, I'm going to, I'm doing with it is I'm, I'm, currently working with a school district in Maryland. And the last visit that I was there, I did a campus observation. And we're going to be using empowered humanity theory as an intervention for teachers, students, for building systems and structures. And as a whole school-wide district, they are going to use empowered humanity theory as kind of how they operate operate what would be some of the situations that uh, a school an institution or a company might hire you for help with what's the problem that you solve helping work groups work more effectively work more cohesively because with the value-centered identity we also take the take time if this is something that they want to do is for each working group to identify what shared values they have because anytime there's more than two people in a room a diverse group has formed and the more people you add and the more time that that group is together, the likelihood for conflict increases. So by identifying central group values and adhering to those group values can eliminate those conflicts. And then setting up opportunities for practices that celebrate our common humanity. You know, whether it be circle sharing, whether it be breaking bread with each other, listening to music, just sharing our stories and connecting, helping them, A, understand what is this humanity, empowered humanity theory, and then we also have time for them to structure uh, elements of it into their existing systems and structures. So it also, since it does cultivate well-being, it makes people happier and healthier and solidifies solidifies relationships and gives people the tools to whenever things go awry what can we do because whenever there's groups of humans in the mix things are going to go awry so what do we do to correct that and also self-compassion is a big is a big piece so that uh idea the attitude of prioritizing mindsets of inquiry and compassion is strengthened by practices that build kindness and compassion for self and others. Because we do talk about how we have to be compassionate and kind to ourselves and not beat each other up, not 
constantly have that ruminating thought about, oh God, that thing that I did, it was so bad and I messed up. How do we move beyond that so those things don't hold us up? Do you ever get brought in to do mediations? No, I've done, when I was an SEL specialist doing that, I would I would be called in uh, to help kind of resolve a conflict with teachers and students. So I have done some of that work for sure. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. So I think my next question for you is, um, these days it seems like HR at any company is under tremendous pressure to adopt DEI, SEL, CRT, (laughs) alphabet soup. Um, would you say that you provide alternatives so that if, if an HR director, let's say is, you know, being asked, like, what are you going to do to satisfy these requirements of diversity, equity, inclusion, or something like that? And they maybe have some concerns about how that's currently being addressed. Does Empowered Pathways provide an alternative? Absolutely. And just so dignity that dignity lens and connecting with people that way, that's how, that's the ultimate inclusion. There is no other, there, you can't be more inclusive than realizing that we are, we do share a common humanity, that we are all in this together. Even, even though our exteriors may look different, we are all connected in this way. And disrupting those attitudes of fear and judgment, that's a way to decrease racism. That's a way to decrease sex, any, any bigotry, because all of those behaviors, they stem from my mindsets that are based in fear and judgment. So the current 
DEI training methods are increasing our capacity for prejudice. They rely on and front load attitudes of fear and judgment. So they're increasing those behaviors. We are institutionalizing, dehumanizing each other right now for the sheer sake of eroding the classical liberal enlightenment era. So what does your work look like in academic settings? It's a like my work, the workshops, when uh, you yeah, say your well, work. Um, I, you help me. <laughs> okay. Um, so, cause I want to know, I, I know that we have a broad listener base that, that are looking for alternatives and I never know like what kind of positions my listeners gotcha. work in, but you know, there might be an opportunity here if the right person here's what you have to say that, oh, this is the kind of training we need in our school or our um, place of, of employment. So I just really kind of want to sell what you're offering. Sure. It's it's a, a one day or two day of really active learning. There is, it's not a sit and get type seminar. Participants are constantly engaged in activities because I believe you have to, people have to experience like, oh, wow, that really felt good. And then I get them to think about, about what are some ways that you can adapt and apply what we just did. And what we just did, what else does it make you think of? So I have them brainstorm. You know, we'll go through, we'll do a celebrate our common humanity. Usually that's a circle activity. And then I'll have participants brainstorm, okay, what are, what are some other practices that celebrate our common humanity? And they'll talk about food and music and sharing our story. So after they've brainstormed these ideas, then in the afternoon or the next day, there's a, there's a planning piece where they take all of their notes, what they've learned and what they've done, and I get them to plug them into their existing systems and structures, or maybe is there a new system that needs to be created to really embed these things? Like some when you people work... really adopt like a kindness campaign because that practices that build kindness and compassion for self and others. Think of, I mean, you can be kind in a jillion ways. So we, we also front load the idea of neuroplasticity and that the brain becomes what it practices. So how can we practice equanimity and awareness? How do we celebrate our common humanity and practice compassion and kindness? How many times in a day can we engage in these practices? Where in our systems and structures can we, can we put these into place? And I'll kind of add on one more thing. One of the other things that I'm doing with that district is I'm helping them design their discipline process. Because we're going to talk, we're talking about disciplining with dignity. How do we keep dignity at the front of whenever we have to discipline a student? Whenever the teacher or the principal may be a little, little heated and the student may be a little heated, you know, how do we, how do we maintain dignity in that situation? And then how do we get students to reflect on their, their learning that, that mistake rather than, Oh, you just, 
you you go home for three days or you go sit in this room and do nothing for two days and think about how bad you are. Yeah, interesting. So when you work with schools, do you work with students directly or do you work with the adults behind the scenes on how they're going to work with students? I, I primarily work with adults. Okay. I, I, so... so that I can provide the adults with the skills and tools that they need because it's hard being... It's a. It's hard being an adult in this world, and it's also hard, you know, being a teacher. So, what are some things that I can provide you, so that your working day is as pleasant as it can be? Do you have any thoughts on restorative justice? I have mixed feelings based on what I've been exposed to. I, I think, from what little I know of restorative justice, it has some grains of truth, some elements of wisdom to it. And then there's some places where it goes awry. And I I really don't know enough about it to comment on it. I will just say I was in an elementary school recently and there was a sign on the wall about restorative justice as pertaining to how like conflicts between students get handled. And I remember having really mixed feelings about it. I wish I could remember exactly what it said, but it was you know, on the one hand, I feel like it was getting at some of the values and approaches that you're talking about with regard to understanding self and other and, you know, being positive values driven solutions focused. But I also, it seemed like this restorative justice method, the way it was outlined on this poster was kind of like, it had already been predetermined who had wronged who. And I feel like, especially amongst children, that's not always clear cut, but there are going to be certain kids that learn how to manipulate that very well. There are going to be kids who are like, oh, if I just cry this way or use this word or, you know, then everyone will think that it's his fault or her fault and that I'm the victim, right? And so I felt a little worried seeing this because I was like, This might apply if it's very obvious and the teachers are quite certain that this person was the aggressor and this person did nothing to provoke it. Um, But there are so many situations between kids where you need to work with each child on personal responsibility for their part. So I was curious about your thoughts on the pros and cons of restorative justice and how it compares to the models that you would uh, help adults develop who are in a position of responsibility towards children in an academic environment. I've seen it I've seen it work and I've seen it fail. The only place that I've seen it work is the amount of resources that the school had to have. There was a restorative and this was this was at a high school that I've seen it work at. But there's a restorative justice person that's always in that office, always, always available. The administrators were highly trained in the restorative practices and the the teachers were trained in those practices. So there's a lot of, a lot of, of front loading of training, a lot of systems and structures that need to be in place, properly organized. 
and also and that required a lot of extra money which most schools don't have extra personnel to devote to that extra money nor do they have an entire staff that has bought into that um and that same staff really valued relationships that they had with their students and one place that i i saw it most definitely not was the climate and culture of the building was not a positive one the teachers had not bought into the restorative practices and that was a situation i was brought in a teacher said can you do a circle with me and a student uh, because that student was misbehaving and i i asked her i said well do you do you do, you do any uh community circles just like regular relationship building circles and she's like oh hell no i don't have time for that and i said well i I don't, I said, I guess I can visit with you in the, I can do that, but I don't think it's going to go very well at all. And sure enough, it did not go very well at all because the relationships weren't established and students and there's, there's this idea that if you do the restorative process, then you're not necessarily really in trouble and you don't have to face a consequence, which I, I don't agree with that at all. I have, you know, back when I w was an assistant principal, I had to discipline kids. I had to suspend kids. I had to send kids to alternative schools. And after every, after not every, but most hearings that I had were, I was removing a kid from school. Um, they would say, thank you, mister. And I said, what, what do you mean? Thank you. I said, you took the time to listen to me and I can tell that you care. Uh, a lot of the adults that we've dealt with that they don't care. You can tell they don't care. I can tell that you care. So just caring about a person and having a relationship with them and especially a student and whenever they slip up, figure out how do we talk about that so that you don't slip up that same way again. So that's, so that's how I handle it without that whole restorative process because I've seen it mostly not work. So that's interesting. You you think that some places where a restorative justice framework is used, that there's not adequate discipline or not adequate consequences, that that it creates this kind of false impression that as long as you jump through these hoops and have this conversation like just so, then you're not going to face any consequences. You know, and I don't know enough about restorative justice to comment on that. I'm hoping that you can explain it a little bit more if that's something that you can comment on. But, you know, what it makes me think of is... Um, the act of discipline in parenting. Um, you know, I, I have a stepkid who, uh, well, I'll just say I have two of them and one, one is a lot testier than the other. Um, and I remember a day that I took away a toy pretty quickly and his reaction was like, what? You didn't give me a warning. And I said, you're not always going to get a warning. Mm -hmm. And the way I explained it to him is that 
well, I'm going to explain it more eloquently right now than I was able to explain it then. But the principle is this, that you have a conscience and at that age, your conscience is still developing, but there is that little voice within all of us that knows what's right and wrong, what hurts Mm. people and what people would like you to do and how, how people would like you to behave. And the point is to listen to that earlier on and get in the habit of listening to it and honoring that voice, right? So if you're acting against that voice because you're a testy little kid and you have a drive to get under people's skin to get a reaction out of them, but you're going against that conscience that knows, you know, this would actually really inconvenience and annoy my brother or my stepmom or, you know, whoever, maybe I shouldn't do it. The point is that I, I, by, by disciplining in that way, I'm saying, I know you have this voice within you and you didn't need a warning from me because you had a warning from that voice. Mm. I need you to start listening to that voice for your warnings. And sometimes you're going to get a warning from me. And sometimes you're just going to lose the privilege right away because I know that you should have known already. And, you know, there's been a couple more times I've kind of repeated that lesson. Like, hey, remember, at any point, (laughs) any of your behaviors could result in any loss of privileges. Um, You know, that kind of snaps him out of it because he's like, oh, I don't have as much leeway to play this game as I like because he will push it right up until the line where he loses privileges. And if you tell him, oh, the line is the next step or the next step, then he's going to be like, okay, I have one more shot to annoy people before I really have to stop. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's kind of what restorative practices lends itself to, especially if, the, especially if the adults in the system aren't bought in and aren't using the tool effectively students kids are smart and they pick Mm -hmm. up on that and if i know that oh i can slip up x amount of times before anything is really done i'm going to really try to do that because i know if i get caught okay there's what you're gonna make me sit in a circle and share my feelings and apologize. Okay. I can, I can do that. So interesting. So you, your take on restorative justice, knowing more about it than, than I do is that sometimes it kind of neglects that piece of that heart to heart relationship that you have as an adult with a child, whether that child is your student or your child or your stepchild or whatever that, that where you're, you're just connecting with them saying, I know that there is a growing conscience in you, mm-hmm. right? Like speaking to that part of, of your shared humanity. Exactly. And I'll say the kernel of truth there is that after there is actual harm, after somebody harms another person, that relationship does have to be restored. Like that's a good thing to restore those relationships. Because if a I've seen teachers continually punish a kid. Like somebody may have said or done something in September. Well, there's still ill will in November and December towards that. There's still relationship strife there. And if there's relationship strife between students and teachers, then learning isn't 
happening as effectively as it could. So there is a need, you know, there's a need for a disciplined consequence and a conversation and a way to repair that harm that was done. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to play devil's advocate for a second because I'm thinking about a conversation I had with Deb Philman. Do you know her? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Reason We Learn YouTube channel. So, you know, we did an episode on schools violating the emotional boundaries of children uh, with some of the SEL stuff that's going on now. And we talked about the value of privacy and, of course, dignity, right? Many of the shared values that you and I are talking about today. Um And she has shared a story of basically her daughter being harassed by an obnoxious boy who wanted her attention and didn't know how to read cues and respect them. And when she finally said something a little bit more blunt because this boy had persisted to push past all of her subtle ways of saying, no, thanks. I don't really want to be friends. Um, when the girl was finally blunt and said, like, look, I don't really want you around. Please give me and my friends some space. Um, it got taken to the principal's office and she got in trouble because the expectation now in some schools is that everyone has to like everyone. Everyone has to be friends with everyone. And and she and I were just talking about what about the lesson for the boy? Like, hey, like, maybe you need to get better at reading cues and responding to them and you know, is this a problem where you're not picking up on cues or is there something in you that is getting something out of pushing people's limits? You know, either way, there's there's a need for help developing in a more healthy way because left unchecked, that behavior gets really creepy and gross and he doesn't act, that boy's never going to learn how to make real friendships or, you know, how to have a real romantic relationship with a girl if that's what he's after. And um, so I think, you know, sometimes it seems like there's too much pressure on everyone to be friends. And 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 there's maybe this kind of missing element of that middle ground of how do you just be around people and maybe not like them, but not make a big deal out of it. You know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. like just respectful, courteous, distant behavior, the sort of thing that you need as an adult, if you're working at a job and there's, you know, a coworker that just gets on your nerves, you ultimately just want to kind of be able to brush them off and still get your work done and cooperate as necessary. I, I think that's where that dignity piece comes in. Um, and I, I separate dignity from respect because everybody talks about respect and we have to respect each other. I'm like, well, no, not necessarily because respect is something that is gained or lost based off of somebody else's behaviors. Whereas dignity, you can honor the dignity of people by staying away from them. I, I use an example. 
I have, I have quite a few people in my life that I don't respect, but I maintain that dignity because it's best. And the way that I can maintain that dignity is keep my distance from them. Right. Is set up and my set up my boundaries. And the, the situation with Deb's daughter that you just explained, that's also seems to discourage people from setting boundaries. Yeah. And that seems exactly. very, very dangerous. And we we shouldn't have to like everybody, but we should be able to know how to treat people that we don't like. Yeah. Sometimes it's best to stay away. That's what I I used to tell people like, stay away. You don't Mm -hmm. have to. I mean, I've I've told kids, you don't have to like everybody. It's impossible for you to like everybody. And I wouldn't expect you to have to like everybody. But we can't be doing damage to people. We Mm -hmm. We can't do that. Just stay away. You know, let let me ask you another question. I'm thinking about how some people have argued and and have made a compelling case for the idea that schools are uh, friendlier to girls than they are to boys. Um, So are you familiar at all with the work of Leonard Sachs? Mm -mm. Oh, brilliant. You're going to love his stuff. I recommend it to everyone. So um, three books. Well, he might have written more, but the three books that I know of are Why Gender Matters, which was about sex differences, especially between boys and girls, and their implications for child rearing, education, and parenting. Um, And then Boys Adrift and Girls on the Edge. So, uh, and he writes very specifically about the issues that boys and girls face, and they're different, you know? For for boys right now, there's an epidemic of underperforming, hence the name boys adrift, right? For girls, it's the opposite, right? It's trying to be so perfect that they work themselves into an eating disorder, right? So that's girls on the edge. Um, So in Why Gender Matters, he makes a compelling case, but I've heard this elsewhere as well, that um, the school system's really set up in a way that works better for girls' learning styles and socializing styles. Um, And so I'm wondering what you think as a man um, in this field about how schools handle conflict um, and how that works for boys' conflict styles and girls' conflict styles. I'll just share a little bit more context. What I mean by that is that girls tend to be more conflict-averse, but uh, we are competitive in ways that are covert as opposed to overt. We are competitive for status, looks, and, you know, things that are very subtle socially, things that boys might not even pick up on. Um, boys are competitive and aggressive in overt ways. And uh, so girls are competitive, well, excuse me, girls are aggressive with their friends far less often, but when they do, it's far more destructive permanently to the friendship, right? Um, whereas boys seem to need more aggression uh, in general as part of working things out. They need healthy outlets for competition and boys' friendships can be strengthened through um, some of that more overt aggression and competition. So, you know, boys can push each other around one day and the next day they're better friends for it because that's part of what they need to do developmentally is kind of test each other for the social hierarchy and strengthen their 
resilience to aggression. Um, and so boys and girls have these very different conflict styles, right? And a lot of this stuff that's going on in the schools is seems more girl-friendly because it's verbal and it's about our feelings mm. <laughs> and it's about our relationships and tending to our relationships, right? Whereas it seems like some of the ways that boys might naturally try to develop relationships just get shut down a lot more quickly. Now, I understand there are liability issues because if boys are going to be physically aggressive, like someone could get hurt, that that's an issue. But uh, is that a concern that you share? Have you had any observations about that? Whenever I was an assistant principal, the girl, I hate to say drama, but the, the girl drama. It's okay, you can you say know, girl drama. With the with the groups fighting and this or that, those investigations and interviews and things, they would last a really long time, like over the span of more than a week. With because whenever they would go home, they would stir the pot, just kind of keep keep it going. Whereas what what you sit with boys, I mean, there would be a, be a fight or something and I could have not every time, but a lot of times both people in my office sitting in a chair next to each other, talking it, talking it out. And <clears throat> now that you say it, I, I guess that the system is kind of set up to stop so, you know, stop the horse play from the boys because a lot of horse, and like you said, there are liability issues, but there is this more like clamp down on the boys than there is the girls. And sometimes girls are given more allowances for negative behavior, perceived negative behavior, should I say? Well, it's it's more covert it's you know how how are you going to know who's the real victim and who's the real perpetrator when there is yes right yes and that that was because i would talk to one person i would get one story and then i would talk to the other person and get a completely like completely different realities so i don't know if how lies were involved or what was going on there but that uh there are those there are those differences and i guess we are leaning more towards the girls and i i know that for many years boys boys were ignored like there's you know that whole uh disparity between boys and girls where all of the focus and attention went on the girls and the boys, you know, oh, you're the, they're the patriarchy. You're the future patriarchy. So we're not going to, to teach you now. And now it makes me wonder like how many little boys are perceived by activist teachers. At, oh, you're, you're the patriarchy. So I'm not going to develop you to your fullest potential. I really do worry about that. You know, I've seen screenshots of things that woke parents have posted that are like fr 
frightening. I mean, I can't remember the exact words, but like, uh, you know, a mom of a boy saying like, I'm going to do this and that to my son so that he doesn't grow up to be a rapist. You know, it's like, okay, this is an infant. And you're already projecting your fear of rape, whether that comes from personal trauma or, you know, things that your friends have been through or just what you've been absorbing from the media and a culture, you're already projecting that on a, onto an infant. Boy, his therapist already has her work cut out for her. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I've seen those. I've seen people sharing that type of stuff as well. Well, I, it's, uh, I'm noticing the time. Um, what did we mean to cover that we haven't yet? Is there anything that you were wanting to circle back to? Uh, just, I I would like to reiterate that our culture, the classical liberal enlightenment era culture that values the individual as the primary importance of society is being destroyed by this ideology that is coming in through our culture, primarily through DEI bureaucracies and initiatives, what's happened to social and emotional learning and how we are talking about anti-racism and empowered humanity theory and empowered pathways is the only organization on the planet that gracefully rejects the ideological approaches that are dividing and destroying us and providing people that have to check those boxes because now organizations and schools sometimes are even federally mandated to do those things and check those check boxes. If there are people that want a humanity centered framework and for their people in their organization to get along and to see each other as equals versus seeing somebody as a stereotyped label, those are the people that I'm interested in in working with and supporting because I know there's those people in those institutions, they're like, oh my God, we've we've been sold a bill of goods. Now what do we do? And that's the exciting part is now what do we do? We can shift, we can throw out those bad ideas and replace them with new ideas. I I go to Tocqueville, who said in the 1830s that the future of of America is dependent on the habits and hearts of minds of its people. And right now, the habits of heart and mind of people is othering each other, is thinking judgmentally towards each other, and even thinking negatively towards ourselves. Because if you're portrayed as an oppressor or if you're por- portrayed as oppressed, you don't feel very good about yourself. And nor do you have a highly uh, favorable opinion of each other. Yeah, and there's no way to win with that. So you do provide these alternatives. So for anyone listening who's in middle management, HR, um, any you know anyone in the education system, and you would like to provide some kind of alternative to the DEI, CRT, SEL, Alphabet Soup um, curriculum, 
Jason provides consulting and it sounds like you can actually customize a plan for That's what we the do. institution that you're working with. Yeah. Everything that's is really custom great. and tailored. Okay. That's, that's excellent. So encourage people to check you out. Where can they find you? Empoweredpathways.org. I'm also on Twitter at Jason, the human T H E E human. I've been identifying as a human first and foremost for quite a while now. I reject what the world tells me I am. I'm mm -hmm. just a human. And that's what we all are. All right. So empoweredpathways.org on Twitter at Jason the Human. And your podcast, once again, is called Reformation Radio. You co-host that with Eric Smith. And that's just been going a few months. Uh, sounds like it's picking up steam. So I, I look forward to hearing how that goes. Hope people will check that out as well. Thank you so Jason, much. Jason, thanks Stephanie. so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.